Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Gymnastics, by the way, is the absolute worst. I never understand how the announcers know every single move that someone is about to make in their routine. It's like watching a movie with a person who's already seen the movie, but you've never seen it. And they're like, oh, my God, watch this scene. Watch this scene. You're not going to believe this. Watch this scene. I mean, it's like, shut the fuck up and let me watch the thing for myself. The Stream Police Podcast is brought to you by OverdueReview.com. Read long-form reviews of movies, TV, and music from the distant and recent past at OverdueReview.com. Hello again, my friend. Good to see you after all this time. Welcome back to the Stream Police Podcast. I'm Clint Davis, your, well, your police chief here on the Stream Police and the movies and TV editor at OverdueReview.com. We bring you this show uh, from the website for free to your ears every couple weeks and uh, tell you some things that are streaming right now in the worlds of music and TV and in music and uh, what's worth your time and what's really not worth a shit at all. That's kind of what we're all about here on the on the stream police. Uh, today I will not be joined by my co-host Andy Sedlak, our music editor, uh, but we'll be uh, getting together for a special show next time, so uh, you can look forward to that. But today you've just got me, my friend, so let me go ahead and light my stogie up. As you know, if you listen to the show before, I'm sitting in my closet in Cincinnati, Ohio, the Queen City. Uh, the, the closet's tiny. I barely have enough room to just stretch, you know, put one elbow out to the side. I got some soundproofing, um, some homemade soundproofing as well, some blankets on the walls, a nice big, like, wool coat to my left, which is banging into my shoulder right now. And I'm sitting on a folding chair in the closet, got my computer in here, got the microphone set up, and uh, that's that's how I do it for you. It's, it's, it's lo-fi, I guess, here on the Stream Police, but we hope you enjoy it. And we are in the dog days of summer, of course, so you'll have to pardon me if I die of heat stroke at any point during this program. I died sitting in a closet talking about old TV show theme songs with you. I guess that would be a pretty good way for me to go out. All right, so coming up today on the show, I'm going to talk with you about Orphan Black from BBC America. I'm going to talk about the Rio Olympic Games and the opening ceremony, and also my problems with uh, Olympics coverage, why I don't really like Olympics coverage too much. I've got some very specific reasons for you that I'll lay out later in the show, and also a movie out on DVD now, Miles Ahead, 
that I'm going to give you my rundown of and a couple films that are streaming now on Netflix and Amazon that you may not have seen that are worth a watch. But let's go ahead and start the show as we always do with the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. And today's pick is a 1990s classic, a stone-cold classic. And I figured that uh, I, I work in news as my day job, and every single day at the office for the past couple of weeks, I've had to hear something about Pokemon Go. And I'm sure some of you guys out there play the game. I, myself, have not played it. Um, and I, it's not really, like, out of protest. It's just, uh, I, I don't know, it, it just doesn't really sound like my kind of thing. I, I used to like the Pokemon games, the Game Boy game, the Red and Blue, and I... I played Diamond on uh, DS, and I mean, I thought they were fun, they were cool, but I'm not really interested in like going around town and actually being outside while I'm playing a game. I mean, that's kind of counterintuitive to me. If I'm going to go outside, I don't want to be playing a game while I'm doing that. If I'm going to play a game, I want to sit on my ass and do it the old-fashioned way. So, call me a curmudgeon, but that's why I haven't played this game yet, but... Pokemon Go is constantly in the news. You can't go anywhere without hearing about it. So I figured we'd go back in time to when Pokemon first ruled the world. I'm talking about the late 90s. This week's theme song is the Pokemon theme from Pokemon Indigo League. The song is the definition of powerhouse, and it has one of the most instantly identifiable opening lines in theme song history. told you it's powerhouse as hell but okay so if you really break down that line that opening line it makes no sense at all i want to be the very best first off that line is a redundancy because once you're the best there's no reason to add very to it you're already the best which is the top so very doesn't make any sense in that line and also then if you're going to follow it up by saying like no one ever was it sounds ridiculous because even if everyone in the world sucked at catching pokemon there had to be somebody who sucked the least and therefore was the very best at their time. So there's there's always a best. It doesn't matter. You can't be the first best unless it's like when the sport first started. So, But anyways, I'm, I'm thinking about it too much. Let's start over again. I want to be the very best. No one ever was. To catch them is my real test. To train them is my in Japan, the show Pokemon first aired in 1997 and had a different theme song. But when it came to America in 1998, songwriters John Siegler and John Loeffler wrote this song that is heavy on inspiration and completely lacking in any degree of subtlety. I will travel across the land, searching far and wide. I looked up those writers, Siegler and Loeffler, to just see if they had done anything else, and really they... Neither of them have really done anything else. I mean, the, the Pokemon theme song is pretty much their claim to fame, even, uh, you know, almost 20 years after it first was heard on American TV. I would legitimately call this one of the best TV theme songs ever, though. It's really catchy. It's really memorable. It's exciting. And it sums up the idea of the series, which is catching Pokemon, training them, and beating other Pokemon trainers, and also making awesome friends like Brock and Misty. <laughs> I give a lot of the credit to why this song is so good to the singer, Jason Page, who channels his inner 1980s glam rock god for this performance. Pokemon, gotta catch them all. It's you and me. I know it's you and me. 
Now, Paige is a veteran vocalist who's sung backup for Michael Jackson, Paul McCartney, Smokey Robinson. I mean, titans of the music industry. This guy has has sung with them. He was also the lead singer for Blood, Sweat, and Tears for a little while. So there's a there's some good trivia for you. He's done theater. He's acted in some movies. And he was about 28 years old when he cut the Pokemon theme. Oh, you're my best friend in a world we must defend little background on the TV series for you. In Japan, the Pokemon TV series has been running for nearly 20 years, with each new season picking up a new storyline. The first season, which is now called Indigo League, that's the one that had this theme song. It had a staggering 82 episodes in its first season alone. 82 episodes in this one season. I mean, that's insane when you think about it. Now, only 80 of those episodes aired in the U.S. because of a couple controversies. One of the episodes was banned because it reportedly caused seizures in two Japanese kids. So that's fun. And the other was banned because it had depictions of guns in it. And I watched Pokemon Indigo League a little bit back in the day when I was a kid. I mean, I remember it coming on. I remember this theme song very, very well. I loved the animation style. It was probably the first show. I mean, Pokemon is an anime show. And I mean, that's like, you know, serious nerd territory, obviously. But I think for me, and probably for a lot of American kids, it was the first anime show that we really watched. And that was popular um, in America. And I think it opened the door to that genre becoming even bigger and, and opened the door for like Cartoon Network to start showing a bunch of anime shows, especially in the Adult Swim block. So I think Pokemon was a pretty influential uh, TV show, especially for its time, but it was the first I remember with that kind of animation style and that re- you know really silly um, style of characters and and just the way that the characters looked is really signature of the anime style. And I definitely remember having a crush on Misty um, when I was a kid for sure. And Ash was, I mean, he was pretty cool, but um, for me, it was all about Misty on that show. Now, I never played the Pokemon cards, but I did, like I said, I played the Game Boy games a little bit. Pokemon Indigo League aired in syndication in the U.S. in 1998 before being picked up by the WB, and that's where I remember watching it was on WB Kids, uh, which is now the CW, uh, and it ran on WB from 1999 to 2000. You teach me and I'll teach you Pokemon! Since the year 2000, there have been a bunch of new Pokemon series but every one of them had different theme songs. They changed it up every year, the Wire style. The Pokemon theme, though, will forever be a TV classic, and I'm unashamed to call it the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. That shit gets you going, man. That pumps you up. I don't know. All right, let's move right along and talk about a series that uh, I've been uh, watching with my wife for the last uh, about a month or so. And it's really one of the most unique shows on TV, and it's an acting powerhouse. So I'm, I'm happy to tell you about it here. It's Orphan Black, and uh, it airs on television on BBC America. It's aired four seasons so far. Season five, which is going to be the final season, is coming in spring of 2017 to BBC America. Um, seasons one through three are right now for free to watch on Amazon Prime. Season four will be hitting Amazon Prime uh, sometime in probably March of 2017, it looks like, from what I've read online. Now, Orphan Black is a sci-fi TV show. It's not an anthology show. It's uh, it's a straight storyline all the way through. Um, and, it, you know, it, it's not one of those, it's not like the X-Files where every week it, a storyline wraps up. This is one long storyline all the way through the series. And it's a pretty 
complex storyline as it goes on. So if you like that kind of thing, if you like a kind of show like Lost where you don't know where it's going to go from, you know, week in, week out. This is not as weird as Lost, but, you know, I I put it up there with that kind of storytelling. If you like that kind of show, I think you'll dig Orphan Black. The show is created by Graham Mason and John Fawcett, uh, and it stars Tatiana Maslany, who has earned two Emmy nominations for her uh, lead role in the series. Jordan Gavaris is also a co-star, Maria Doyle Kennedy, and Kevin Hanchard. Now, chances are, unless you watch Orphan Black or you're a serious acting nerd, none of those names are going to mean anything to you, the creators of the show or the stars of the show. They're not going to mean shit to you. It's going to be one of those unknown casts, and that's really one of the beauties of this show. This show is made in Canada. It's set in Canada. Um, and like I said, it airs on BBC America. So that's a network that not a lot of people watch, um, you know, necessarily. So uh, unless they're watching Top Gear or something like that. So it's a show that certainly flew under the radar, especially for the first couple seasons, and it was made uh, for not a very high budget. Like I said, I mean, we're talking about people who've worked in TV, but they're not really name brand people. But, man, I love when a show like that really takes off because it's essentially you're talking about a passion project and you're talking about a bunch of hungry actors. I mean, these are not lazy actors, and they prove it every week on this show. And that is the hallmark to me of Orphan Black. It's not the imagination of the show. It's the acting in the show that really keeps me coming back because it is seriously good acting. Now, let me just lay it out for you. Orphan Black's a really fun and odd show. It's uh, What it follows is it follows a woman uh, named Sarah, who's played by Tatiana Maslany, who is kind of like this rebellious figure. She's in her early 20s. She's run away basically from uh, her home. She abandoned her child and went uh, to England at kind of like at the start of the show. She's coming back from basically being gone. She left her kid with her foster mother for a while, and nobody really ever thought they were going to see her again. But then she comes back to Canada and is kind of getting reacquainted with everyone. So meanwhile, while she's got all this personal drama going on, she's been involved with uh, a drug-dealing boyfriend in the past who might be out for her head at this point now, um, you know, owing people money and all that kind of stuff. She's got plenty of danger around town if people spot her. But to make things even weirder, the first day she's back, she spots this this other woman who looks exactly like her. I mean, exactly, except for the fact that this other girl doesn't have tattoos and doesn't wear the same clothes, but her face is identical. Um, And she sees this woman kill herself. So then she starts uh, looking into that woman's background and figures out eventually that she's a clone of her. And she starts to find slowly that she has other clones. And there are clones all over the world who look exactly like her. They're the same age, and they all live different lives. And several of them are living in Canada, and they form kind of this group where they're trying to get to the bottom of who cloned them and uh, you know where did, why, where did all this start and why do they exist. So it's really, like I said, it's a weird premise for a show. But, man, it is such – it's so fun to watch. And these characters are so so well done. And what I think is really unique about Orphan Black, again, this is like a high-concept kind of show. Like Lost, it's unique in the fact that it's not based on a book or a comic comic series. This is original television. This was written for TV, so really no one knows where this is going to go. And I like that a lot. I mean, for as great as Game of Thrones is, and, well, I guess Game of Thrones has gotten away from that because they're off book now. 
But, you know, for a while there, everyone knew everything that was going to happen. I mean, it really wasn't surprising, even though for TV audiences it was, there were still a large pocket of people who knew what was going to happen. With Orphan Black, we're all in the dark, and that's really one of the things that makes it so much fun, and that's what made a show like Lost so much fun when it was on, because nobody had a clue, and sometimes you felt like the writers didn't even have a clue where the hell they were trying to go with something. The cast of the show is largely Canadian. Pretty much all the actors are Canadian natives. And like I said, that's where the show comes from itself. So it's definitely a Canada-centric show, um, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's a really fun one to watch. Now, Tatiana Maslany, I told you, she's been nominated for two Emmys. In the show, she plays all the different clones. So I, I can't remember what the count is up to now. I think she's played like nine different clones at this point. And this is not... And when I say this... You're probably going to think it's something cheesy like Eddie Murphy, you know, dressing up like different members of the Clump family sitting around the table in The Nutty Professor. It's not like that. I mean, we're talking about we're talking about, uh, you know, a half dozen or so really unique, fully developed characters that she plays. They have different accents. um, They have totally different mannerisms. I mean, these are different characters and she plays every single one of them with the same depth. I mean, one of them is even trans. So, I mean, essentially she's playing a man in one of them, but obviously it's her. She embodies these different characters so well and it's really all on her. This show lives and dies with Tatiana Maslany. If she wasn't very good, this show would not be very good. But the fact that she's incredible makes this show really compelling to watch. You're going to shoot me while your kids are sleeping. You wake them or show your face. Yes, I will shoot you. Well, I've never known a blood relation, but being your twin certainly sucks. You really have no idea, do you? Hey, I'm Kasima. We talked on the phone. How many of us are Her performance, and I... I really try not to use hyperbole. I used to use hyperbole a lot. I try not to do it so much anymore. My wife told me I used to use it too much. So I try to dial the hyperbole down. But her performance in Orphan Black is one of the best TV performances I have ever seen. And I've watched a lot of TV. I'd put her work on this show up there with James Gandolfini in The Sopranos, John Hamm in Mad Men, Brian Cranston in Breaking Bad. I'm talking about the Mount Rushmore of TV performances. I'd put Tatiana Maslany up there. It's the best performance I've ever seen from a woman, uh, bar none, on TV, I have to say, because she's doing so much. She's juggling so much, and she's making these characters so three-dimensional you know, the whole way. They're not just caricatures. We really get to know, we don't get to know their backgrounds as much as I would like to on all of them. Some of them are more, uh, you know, fully developed than others, but she makes all of them unique. Like none of them feel the same at all. And it's not just because she's wearing different clothes. It's the accents. It's the mannerisms. I mean, this is just like a masterclass in how to do character acting that she's putting on here. And she was 28 years old when the first season aired. So, I mean, she's a young, young actor, It's exemplary work that she's doing, and if she doesn't win an Emmy at some point during the run of this show, I'm going to add her to my list that I did when the Emmys aired in 2015 uh, about, you know, reasons why the Emmys suck, and I'm going to put her right up there with all the other reasons that I gave you. But she does have a chance this September to to finally win an Emmy for this performance. The supporting cast is also really strong, and like I said, they're mostly unknown. Um, Jordan Gavaris, who I mentioned before, he plays the foster brother of 
Maslani's character, Sarah, and he's essentially like her right-hand man. I mean, he's basically the sidekick in this show, and he gets along with basically all the other clones in different ways, and he's got frosty relationships with some of them, very warm relationships with some of them, but his character is so much fun to watch, um, and, and just he adds so much life to this series and is absolutely one of my favorite parts of the show and Gavaris does really good acting in the show he's just a, he's a joy to watch and he was only 24 years old when the first season aired which is crazy to me he had essentially been in nothing else before these are your worst clothes well i'm sorry mate but i don't shop secondhand no no it my god no it's not mate right it's more like um it's like might might yeah hello mate um, yeah, that's better. It's like the casting director took the biggest leap of faith on all the actors in this show, and it paid off in such a big way uh, because everyone has pulled their share. I mean, uh, there's not really anybody I can think of on the show who let me down with their performance or who, you know, grinded things to a halt. There have been plenty of characters on the show who, at the beginning, I didn't really like very much, but then they grew a lot. Donnie would be a big one there for me. But at this point, I like him a lot. So if you've watched the show, you know what I'm talking about. A little bit of background for you on the creators of the show. I said Graham Mason and John Fawcett. Mason is a a writer whose biggest credit was as co-writer of the 1997 movie Cube, which is a favorite of mine. I got it on my shelf. I love that movie. It's so strange and unique, and there's really nothing like Cube if you've never seen that, uh, if you like high-concept sci-fi. And if you basically, if you want to watch a 90-minute episode of The Twilight Zone, give Cube a watch because that's really what it is. It's very cool stuff and something I think Rod Serling would have enjoyed watching very much. But Mason really hasn't done anything huge since then, and we're talking about 1997. I mean, this is almost 20 years later now. Fawcett, meanwhile, John Fawcett has the bigger resume of the two. He's been a TV director since 1996. He's directed episodes of a ton of shows, including Xena Warrior Princess, Queer as Folk, Rookie Blue, and even ESPN's Playmakers. He directed an episode of that. And again, that's one of my all-time favorite cult shows. It was only on for one season, but God, that show had bigger balls than anything ESPN has probably ever done. And that's ultimately why they canceled it. They didn't cancel it because the show wasn't awesome. They canceled it because they got pressure from the NFL uh, because the show made the NFL look so bad. But yeah, Playmakers. So John Fawcett's got that on his resume. This show, though, it's pure sci-fi fun. It's really weird stuff. Like I said, it's hard to explain it um, because there have been so many twists and turns in the storyline. But it's a really fast watch. I think we're talking about 12 episodes a season. Um, We're talking about a, a show that really leaves you hanging on some on the endings of some episodes so you do want to binge it it's a very binge worthy show um but i i will say it took me some time to warm up it probably took me until the third season to really really say that i love this show i liked it in the first season i wasn't crazy about it for the first few episodes season two i started to like it a lot more and then season three i loved it so i I feel like it got better every year or maybe it's just that i got more attached to these characters as the years went by. But if if you have one reason to watch it, if you love acting, Tatiana Maslany is giving the performance of a lifetime in this show. I mean, I'm telling you, it's a master class in how to play multiple characters at once. And it looks really good when they do it. Like, they'll have four of the clones in a shot at a single time. And for a show that doesn't have a huge budget, it looks really good. It doesn't look cheesy ever. There's never been a time where I, you know, felt like it, it looked stupid or it looked obviously 
faked, even though it clearly is. Um, I, I feel like they, they do a nice job with it. They don't, uh, and they don't do like too many gimmicky things either. Uh, with the fact that it's uh, it's a bunch of clones, so it's interesting. And, and some the best scenes in the show happen, and I think the best acting from Maslani happens when she'll have to be one of the clones, and the clone will have to pretend she's one of the other clones. So like for some reason she'll have to put herself in the position of one of the other ones because something's going on and the one's busy and she has to take her place. And, and since they look exactly alike, it's easy to do. But she does it in such a brilliant way that it's clear she's playing one character playing the other instead of just herself playing the other character, if you know what I'm saying. Um, Like I said, it's hard to talk about this show because it's all one actor really doing all the work, uh, all the heavy lifting. But, man, she is so much fun to watch. I love this girl. I I hope she has a career that just lasts decades and decades because I want to continue – uh, seeing her in in movies and in more TV shows, but you know, I, I just I hope she makes a jump and really becomes big, and and I hope she wins an Emmy for this performance because she really deserves it. So Orphan Black right now is uh, airing on BBC America. The fifth and final season is going to air spring of 2017, and meanwhile, seasons one through three are on Amazon Prime for free to watch right now. Uh, season four will be coming to Amazon Prime in March of 2017 just probably about a month before the fifth season airs if i had to give you a guess on that so i I fully recommend orphan black especially if you dig sci-fi and especially if you dig acting you got to give this one uh, a watch it's a master class from that lead actor and like i said i'd put her up there with gandolfini cranston ham i think she's doing one of the great performances we've ever seen on tv All right, I'm going to take a pause for a minute, kick back, smoke my stogie a little bit, take a drink, and uh, I'll be back in just a minute to talk about the Olympics opening ceremony and uh, miles ahead and also some movie recommendations for you on Netflix and on Amazon. Be right back. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I tell you, you never smoked a stogie in your closet before in the middle of August. You haven't lived, my friend. Back with you again, Clint Davis, movies and TV editor at OverdueReview.com. If you go there to the website, the latest movie that I've reviewed was uh, 1966's Alfie, starring uh, Michael Caine. 
And you might remember that Jude Law, they remade that movie with Jude Law uh, a few years ago. And I watched it and I vaguely remember it. I, I really don't remember it very well, but the Michael Caine version was really good, really edgy. And, uh, I mean, Caine was just he's such a such a badass back in his day. I mean, I think he's really cool still, but just a legitimate badass and such a unique guy. I mean, his accent and everything, I, I mean, just something about him. I don't think there's really ever been another actor quite like Michael Caine. Um, in history, and we've had plenty of great British actors, but he's he's just like uniquely blue collar British, um, but also so suave and cool at the same time. But there's nothing sophisticated about Michael Caine, and that is what I really like about him. So you can read my uh, full uh, long form take on on Alfie up there at the website right now. But uh, that's that's a really good film. If that one ever uh, becomes streaming, you you should give it a watch. It's a quick one, and it's it's. Uh, it's good. It's not really fun. I mean, it's it's heavy. It's like a, a dramedy in the purest sense and a bit of a cautionary tale. All right, let's talk about something that is uh, right now going on on televisions all across the world. The Rio 2016 Olympic Games, the uh, 2016 Summer Olympics. <laughs> The opening ceremony just aired uh, a, a couple nights ago here from when I'm talking to you on NBC, and I did want to talk about that a little bit because that's a TV event in and of itself. And if you didn't watch it, then I believe you can go on YouTube now and, and search for the opening ceremony in Rio if you do want to spend you know an hour of your time watching that. Now, I'm not talking about the Parade of Nations. Specifically, I'm talking about the actual opening ceremony with the music and you know the performances and uh, it's 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 really interesting stuff, and unlike anything that you're going to see on network TV uh, on a regular basis. So, the Rio opening ceremony was a little artsy fartsy at times, but you know, let's face it, which opening ceremony isn't these days? They all are pretty much since China raised the bar back in 2008. But this is one of those TV events that I really do look forward to every four years because it's so interesting and unique and so international. It did strike me this year as a typical ethnocentric American that despite Brazil being the fifth most populated country in the world, I really feel like they haven't given us in the Northern Hemisphere Western world many cultural icons. I mean, you've got Pele, obviously. You've got a bunch of Victoria's Secret models. But I'm just like, I I think about Brazilian culture and I think, and all I think about are like the favelas, the colors, the Christ the Redeemer statue, um, you know, some of the classic sites, the beaches, all that kind of stuff, soccer. But I, I really don't think of a specific thing that I connect with Brazil. And that's sad for how big of a country it really is. So sure, in the in the opening ceremony, we heard probably the most recognizable Brazilian song internationally, which would be The Girl from Ipanema, um, but I mean, that was a Grammy winning hit more than 50 years ago. You're talking about 1964 with Stan Getz and Joao Gilberto doing that song. That's, that's not a new tune and it's not really relevant anymore. I mean, it's bossa nova. It's cool, but it's so 1960s that you play it today. And I mean, it just, it does, it sounds old unless you're watching it in an episode of Mad Men. It really doesn't fit in anymore. So I'm like, yeah, all right. That's a huge song. You know, I love that song. Loved it for a while, but it's 50 years old. And we saw Giselle Bündchen come out and do a little 
you know, little catwalk walk. She's one of about four A-list fashion models to come from Brazil in recent years. But, you know, other than that, Americans, I feel like just we don't have a lot of touchstones with that country, despite how big it is. So it kind of made me sad when I was watching the opening ceremony. City of God. Now, if you remember that movie, that was a great movie. That was a Brazilian movie set in Brazil. But it's not exactly the kind of film that a country wants to tout when it's got the world's ear and is hoping to make a good impression. You know, some crime movie that really doesn't make the country look good at all. But, you know, that's probably the best Brazilian film, at least the best one that I can think of. Because The Boys from Brazil was not actually made made by Brazil, I I don't think. It wasn't made by Brazilian filmmakers. Bottom line, though, I thought they did a great job at the opening ceremony showing the positive things that make Brazil unique. And it really made me feel sad because it made me feel like I was missing out on this country's culture. It didn't make me feel like they haven't done anything great and like, oh, they're a piece of shit country and they haven't given us anything. It made me feel like we haven't done a good enough job of like reaching out and finding Brazilian things and and, uh, you know, showing them on TV or in movies or whatever. It's, it's just it kind of made me sad or picking up Brazilian musicians and, you know, giving them a chance over here. But it, it does seem like kind of an insulated country with very much its own culture, um, and it's not really exporting a lot of that around the world. But, hey, you know, who needs to? Like I said, I, I'm thinking of this as a typical ethnocentric American at the end of the day. Now, the Parade of Nations, which is like – if I watched it once all the way through, and, man, if, if you've got three and a half hours to spare to watch this thing, then, you know, good on you. But these days I just don't anymore. I can't stay up that late. So we saw in the Parade of Nations women – pretty much running the show this year, which was really cool to see. Nearly 300 of America's 554 athletes this year at the Olympics are women. That's the most that, that's the biggest delegation of women ever from any country in Olympics history. And that's more women than men, and I think that was a first also uh, for America at the Olympics. Even Iran, which doesn't exactly have a reputation as a forward-thinking country, even Iran had a woman carrying its flag, and not just a woman— but a woman in a wheelchair. So they had a disabled woman carrying their flag from Iran. So that's probably like the last thing I thought I was going to see. And there was a team of refugee athletes um, who were competing independently. And that was really neat to see. I mean, it just and they got a great welcome around the stadium. Just really cool stuff. And it's neat to see Michael Phelps back out there because his name had kind of been slammed a little bit in recent years, all basically because he smoked some weed, which is like, who really gives a shit about that anymore? Um, But, you know, people kind of made Phelps sound bad or something. I mean, made him sound like he, you know, wasn't really the great, uh, the great role model Olympian that everyone thought he was. But, you know, I still, uh, I, I was still, I was really glad to see him. And I mean, the guys won more medals than anybody. How can you beat that? Now, as far as the Olympics as a live television event, We have never seen any event as large as the 2016 games are going to be. Let me break down some numbers for you. NBC is going to air 6,755 hours of Olympic coverage across 11 TV networks and on 40 different streaming channels. 6,755 hours. We're talking nearly 7,000 hours of television. And yes, I'm counting streaming as television in the airing of the Olympics. So there's going to be a ton of coverage. But as we all know, quantity does not equal quality. It never does. But I like the idea of NBC giving the power of watching the Olympics to the people, meaning that if if you want to watch fencing all the time and you don't care about swimming and you don't care about gymnastics, you don't care about tennis or soccer, you just want to watch fencing. You can just watch fencing 
on like the dedicated streaming channel for that sport. You can watch all the fencing you want to. And that's really the way the Olympics should go because a long time ago, you know, usually just every night in primetime, they would air a block of whatever like the big primetime sports were. They'd cut back and forth. It wasn't live. Um, it wasn't always live and it especially wasn't live when the time zone was like in Japan or something like that. But it was up to the network to decide what you wanted to watch. Now it's really it's up to everyone. So it's it's really cool in that way. And I think the Olympics are a natural um, a natural event for a mass live streaming experiment like the one that NBC is doing now. I don't know what, what kind of money they're spending on doing airing all these hours of TV, 6,755 hours. That's a lot because you're going to have to pay an engineer for every one of those hours. You're going to have to have at least one photographer, probably, you know, really three or four at every single event. You're going to have to have a director for each event. You're going to have to have, I mean, more than that, logistics of making TV are pretty, uh, you know, are pretty expensive. So it's going to cost a lot to make 6,755 hours of television, especially if no one's watching some of those hours. But let me tell you the big reason that I don't really like watching Olympics coverage as much as I like watching typical sports coverage. And I'm a sports fan um, in general. I watch a lot of sports. But the reason why I don't like watching the Olympics nearly as much as I like watching other sports is that Olympic broadcasters, I think, are really irritating because they always make me feel stupid. And we'll see if you agree with what I'm saying here. When I watch a random game, between the New York Giants and the Seattle Seahawks, like on Fox on Sunday NFL, I feel like either team has honestly a great chance at winning the game, no matter what their records are. And I feel like the announcers in that game know that anybody can win, and they've studied both. They they've studied both teams, you know, down to a T. They know every guy on those teams. They've interviewed all of them, and they've got little anecdotes about everybody. When I watch a random golf tournament, I feel like the announcers are just as pleased as I am when an unknown golfer wins the whole thing. It's fun to hear the surprise in the announcers, but at the Olympics, the announcers are never surprised. It's like somehow the broadcasters for the sports, and mainly I'm talking about swimming, gymnastics, and track here. It's like those broadcasters always know exactly who's going to win, and they've told me so many times that there's no chance for even me to be surprised when that person does win. It's like they like to show off how smart they are and how much research they've done, but really it just makes it irritating. Even if you know who's going to be the favorite and who's going to win, why do you have to tell me that? Why do you have to tell me a hundred times that this person is like definitely going to win and they're probably going to set a world record? I mean, how can I enjoy and be surprised by that? All it does is make me disappointed if the person doesn't come through. And if so-and-so doesn't win, that they've touted as being the winner, then they don't praise the person who upset them. They, they just start dwelling on the fact that the person didn't win and how disappointing that is to them and also to the athlete themselves. So I just feel like the announcing at the Olympics is so irritating and it's like almost too researched. You know, it's like they they just give away way too much and they're just irritating broadcasters compared to the people that do the sports that we watch all the time. Now, listen to the announcers in any of those three marquee summer Olympic sports, gymnastics, swimming and track. There are like three or four people in any given heat that they know is going to be in medal contention, and they tell us that a hundred times. And the other five or six competitors, meanwhile, might as well have not even shown up. I mean, they hardly even mention them at all. You can tell they don't really know anything about them. They don't even give them a chance in hell. And it usually ends up going that way. It's like, yeah, those three or four people are the ones in medal contention. So, again, it makes me feel stupid because it's like, well, why didn't I know that? I mean, God, obviously it's clear knowledge that the lower four people in these heats are like pieces of shit and they have no chance of even winning. So why'd they even come out? 
but these announcers know, but I don't know. So it just makes me feel like I'm not really a part of the telecast, which is, I feel like, a cornerstone of good sports broadcasting. You bring the person in. You listen to Vin Scully call a baseball game. He brings you in. It's like you're in the stadium. You're sitting next to him. And you're listening to him tell you what's going on. I mean, it's a joy. And he's excited when something surprising happens. Jack Buck being surprised. Gibson swings and a fly ball to deep right field. This has got to be a home run. Unbelievable. A home run for Gibson. I don't believe what I just saw. I don't believe what I just saw. You never hear something like that at the Olympics, except for Do You Believe in Miracles from Al Michaels, because, again, that was a team sport, and everyone was surprised by it. But these individual sports, it's like there is no room for any kind of surprises. Gymnastics, by the way, is the absolute worst. I never understand how the announcers know every single move that someone is about to make in their routine, and they tell us. They tip the hand every time. It's like, oh, watch this, watch this. It's like watching a movie with a a person who's already seen the movie, but you've never seen it, and they're like, oh, my God, watch this scene, watch this scene. You're not going to believe this. Watch this scene. Oh, my God, watch this. This is so great. This is so funny. Watch this. This joke is great. I mean, it's like, shut the fuck up and let me watch the thing for myself. So once again, the announcers know every single move someone's about to make in their routine. Therefore, they can never be positively surprised by anything that happens. They can only be disappointed by something that doesn't happen that they expected to happen. And I feel like a key part of sports broadcasting, again, is being surprised as an announcer when something surprising happens. Also, I hate the nitpicking in gymnastics on the moves that are going to cost them point reductions and the sound of disappointment in the announcer's voice when someone like bends their elbow a quarter of a centimeter or separates their legs by an inch or so. It's so annoying to sit through and listen to that. And it's the same in the Winter Olympics with figure skating. It's like everything has to be so precise. The announcers just sound like they're like disappointed dads when somebody bends their elbow a little bit on the parallel bars or something, or they move like a quarter inch when they land. Um, They're like, oh, my God, that's going to cost me a half point. Oh, Jesus Christ. I mean, it's so irritating to listen to that. And I just feel like the announcers are so negative and they're just so such know-it-alls that it completely takes me out of the telecast. So maybe I'm alone in that, but I, I really do not like the way the broadcasting is done uh, at the Olympics. And that's an every four-year thing. I mean, that's, just the, that's the way they've done it every year that I've ever watched the Olympics. So I don't see that changing anytime soon. But meanwhile, in the, the big, you know, like in golf or in tennis, the traditional sports that are at the Olympics, there are some surprises. But those individual sports, man, it's just like it's too scripted. I hate that they know everything that's going to happen before I do. just makes me feel stupid. Anyways, the Olympics are going on uh, through most of August on NBC, on uh, like Bravo, MSNBC, CNBC, Golf Network. NBC Sportsnet, all those NBC Universal channels are doing some kind of Olympics telecast throughout the uh, throughout the games. And again, six thousand seven hundred and fifty-five hours of Olympic games coverage is going to come your way uh, through the end of August. So crazy stuff there. But uh, anyways, I'd love to know your thoughts on that. Maybe you love the Olympics more than I do, but those are my big problems with it. I want to love it, but God, those announcers. And I come at sports announcing like a nerd because it's what I used to do. So I nitpick it a little bit more than some people probably do, but I just can hardly watch it some nights. 
I mean, listening to an Olympics gymnastics broadcaster is like watching a film with the most pretentious film critic of all time, nitpicking every little thing that happens and saying how this is just going to ruin the whole film. All right, speaking of movies, let me talk about a, a film that right now is on DVD and Blu-ray. It's also for rental through all the you know digital uh, rental and streaming companies. You can't. Uh, it's not on Netflix. It's not on Amazon Prime right now. It's not on Hulu, but. Uh, I have to imagine it'll show up on one of those at some point. It's Miles Ahead, which was directed by Don Cheadle, who also stars in it and was the co-writer of the film. And Ewan McGregor is also the co-star with Cheadle in this movie. Miles Ahead is a biopic of Miles Davis. But I say it's a biopic in like the loosest sense of the word. This is one of the most exciting and interesting biopics that I've ever seen. And probably the most unique movie about a musical icon since 2007's I'm Not There. And if you remember that movie, that was the one that's about Bob Dylan, but Bob Dylan's name is never mentioned. And we've got like five or six different actors playing Bob Dylan, including Kate Blanchett, in a great performance. That's one of my favorite Kate Blanchett performances when she played uh, Bob Dylan. I think she was nominated for an Oscar for that. Anyways, so Don Cheadle plays Miles Davis. And this is like a project that Don Cheadle has been wanting to do for years. I mean, I remember hearing that Don Cheadle was going to be doing a Miles Davis biopic years ago, a long time ago, um, because I'm a big Miles Davis fan. I've got, you know, tons of his albums. I've been listening to him since I was in high school, uh, not just because we share the same last name, no relation. Uh, but I, I just always loved him, loved his style. Um, I've uh, read a book about him. I, I've got one I've got a documentary that I think Blue Note or Sony Music somebody made it I can't remember uh years ago about you know kind of his life and his career so I know a bit about the guy going into this film so I was like all right how are they going to present Miles here and, and how good is it going to be but what makes this movie so interesting is that it doesn't try to cover Miles Davis's life like it's not like Ray we're not going back to his childhood and you know we're not watching him we're not watching him record sketches of Spain and watching him record in a silent way and, and, and seeing him hanging out with John Coltrane and, and, and Wayne Shorter and all these guys. It's not that kind of a movie. This movie is really focused on Miles Davis as a character, as a person, especially in one turbulent part of his life. The whole movie is set, I think it's in the early 80s, or it's it's either the late 70s or the early 1980s. Either way, the movie is set after a five-year retirement that Davis took from music in the late 1970s. He didn't record anything. Well, he recorded some things, but he didn't release anything for five years in the late 70s. So uh, the record label Columbia is hassling him for you know the next record, even though he's basically like the guy who built Columbia and made it into what it was. They're paying him still. But they're uh, you know they're they're starting to get impatient at this point and wondering you know well let's let's hear some of the things you've cut and Miles meanwhile is protecting these master tapes with his life of some of the things he's recorded at home he's an icon but he's not interested really in playing music anymore partly because he's more interested in drinking and getting high this is definitely a Miles Davis with uh, substance abuse problems that we meet in this movie but also because he's got no inspiration in his life of any kind. We keep getting flashbacks to times when he did have inspiration in his life, but he has none at this point. The tap is pretty much run dry. And the movie is more like a 1970s crime flick with Miles Davis as the main character than it is a music biopic with Miles Davis as the main character. The story of the movie sees Davis pairing up with a Rolling Stone reporter who's played by Ewan McGregor, and the two of them try to get the master tapes back after someone steals them from his house. 
I mean, I'm talking we get like some car chases, we get some gunplay. The whole time you're you're really wondering if this is actually happening in the movie, and you're also wondering, did this actually happen in real life? And the answer is that most of the stuff that happens in this movie did not happen in real life. But like I said, that's what makes this so interesting as a movie about a real person. Because this is Miles Davis, a character. This is not necessarily uh, the deep picture of Miles Davis, the man. We get some great flashbacks. We get some insight into what made Davis such a heavy figure in music history. We get one of the best performances I've ever seen from Don Cheadle. And he's a guy that pretty much does a great performance in everything he's in. But you could tell that this was all passion on Cheadle's part. Like I said, he co-wrote the movie. He directed the movie. He made sure it got financed. He worked with Miles Davis's family. And he sounds exactly and looks exactly like Miles Davis. There are times... Especially at the end, he does this one performance at the end. It's it's very surreal because it's like Miles Davis performing with a bunch of notable musicians from today, including like Questlove from The Roots and some other people. So it's like Miles Davis is still alive today performing with these people. Like I said, very surreal. It plays over the end credits. And I saw some tweets from people who were confused by that. They're like, well, I thought Miles Davis was dead, but there he was performing with Questlove and with all these other people. But that's how much Cheeto looks and embodies uh, Miles Davis in this film. Because obviously Davis is dead. He's been dead for a little while. Uh, but you would think he's back to life and he's acting in this film because Cheeto just channels him so well. It's a fascinating performance. It's a really interesting movie. But don't go into it expecting to learn a bunch about Miles Davis. If you like if this if that's what you want out of this then go pick up a documentary or a, a biography of Miles Davis. Don't watch Miles Ahead to learn about Miles Davis. But do watch it if you want to learn more about what made him such a fascinating guy and also to just see a great performance from Don Cheadle. Ewan McGregor's good in it too. They're fun to watch together. But Cheadle is fantastic in this and uh he he's just it, it's such a unique film and I love movies that are original and unique and this really is. So I give Miles Ahead a big thumbs up. Uh, I love this movie. It fascinated me, and I liked it more and more as it went on. And after the credits rolled, I really felt myself thinking about it a lot and enjoying it even more. You know, old people, they come up to me and they say, why don't you play like you used to? I say, tell me how I used to. It takes a long time to be able to play like yourself. Man, don't do nothing like you used to. The music don't move on in this dead music, you know. It's just dead. Whether you're a Don Cheadle fan or a Miles Davis fan, uh, or just like a, a fan of like the 70s aesthetic and 70s crime pictures and stuff like that, um, exploitation movies, get, give Miles ahead a watch. You'll really dig it. Last thing I want to mention before I cut out this week on the Stream Police, two movies that are now streaming that you may not have seen, one on Netflix and one on Amazon Prime. I'll start with Amazon Prime. Right now there's a movie streaming on there called Mr. Holmes, and I gave a full review of this movie in a previous episode. You can look back. It stars Ian McKellen, the great Sir Ian McKellen, as Sherlock Holmes at the uh, end of his career, really at the end of his life. Holmes has retired at this point, but someone brings him this irresistible case that he's got to try to work out. Um, and it's uh, it's a really uh, it's a good performance from Ian McKellen, and it's an interesting look at Sherlock Holmes. And I said it before that this is probably my favorite screen representation of Sherlock Holmes that I have ever seen, and I think that's big praise because he's been 
he's been done on screen a lot. But I think Mr. Holmes is, to me, that's my favorite Sherlock Holmes uh, performance ever. So that right now is on Amazon. If you want a good mystery film, nice low-key movie, uh, give that one a watch. And on Netflix, meanwhile, streaming right now that you may not have seen, The Big Short, which had probably the best cast of any movie in 2015. And uh, I did a full review. I, I can't remember if I reviewed it on the stream police, but I did write a full review of it at OverdueReview.com. So you go to Overdue Review, you search Big Short, you'll read my full thoughts on it there. Um, I came down on, on liking this movie. I didn't love it, but I really did like it a lot. It's an interesting way to do a financial film. It's about the uh, kind of what led to the financial crisis of 2008 um, and, and how uh, the banks were really the bad guys in all of this and how they screwed everyone in America over at the same time, really with no consequences whatsoever. And it's just you know fun to see guys like Brad Pitt and uh, Ryan Gosling, and uh, it's just a, it's a really cool Steve Carell doing a heavy performance in this. It's a it's a star packed movie, and it's an it's interesting the way they made it because they break the fourth wall quite a bit, which was probably my least favorite part of the movie. I did feel like it was a bit distracting um, and a bit showy, but The Big Short's still a, a unique movie. And like I said, I just I like when a movie's unique because we don't see enough unique ones these days. So you want to educate yourself on the financial crisis. Give it a watch. It's the big short right now on Netflix. All right, I'm going to take off. I'm Clint Davis again, the movies and TV editor at OverdueReview.com. Thanks to you for listening, my friend, uh, my co-host, my partner in crime, Andy Sedlak, our music editor. will be uh, back on the next episode, and we're going to try to get together and do a special show for you on that one. We'll see how that goes. Maybe it'll crash and burn. Maybe it'll go great. But we uh, thank you for sticking around with us, subscribing, and telling your friends about it. We do this show for free. We do it uh, because we love to do it, and uh, hopefully you guys love to listen to it as well. Email me at theclintdavis at gmail.com, T-H-E, clintdavis at gmail.com, and follow us on Twitter at overdue underscore review. Uh, Until next time, my friends, stream on. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.